The level of inhumanity that exists in that context is extreme. Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International. My name is Evelyn McClafferty and this month on the show... The conditions that the people are being forced to live in and the conditions that they've fled from, it's another planet. Our guest on today's programme is Eva Buzo, an Australian barrister and the head of the NGO Victim Advocates International. It's just so important that they get to see justice take place. Eva has done huge work with the Rohingya community, a displaced people who have fled Myanmar because of what the US has termed genocide, allegedly committed by the country's military. A large proportion of the Rohingya community now live in one of the largest refugee camps in the world, in the Cox's Bazaar district of Bangladesh. It's an incredibly dire situation. I talked with Eva as she was transiting from Cox's via Bangkok back to Australia on one of her multiple trips to the district. She says she's little faith in multiple international courts in delivering justice for the Rohingya people. Those courts are going to be meaningless to the Rohingya if they can't go home. Eva spent two years in the Cox's Bazaar district at one point where close to one million Rohingya now live. She dealt with a humanitarian response as thousands of Rohingya began to revive at the camp in 2017. Everyone needs to step up in this situation and do more. Because of Eva's proximity to trauma and victims as part of her work, she's had to learn how to create some distance, to cope, to live, and she's found her escape in wild swimming. For me, it just feels like such a balancing. Eva is not just any swimmer though, she's an ultra marathon swimmer, taking to the waters to calm her mind. In June, she's swimming from Italy to Albania. Eva, I wanted to start off by talking about your work with Victim Advocates International, an organisation of victims and for victims, victims of some of the most serious crimes known to humanity. You're embedded in this work and in the stories of these people, in their lives, in fact. But crucially, because this is hugely heavy content, right? In order for you to do your job and do your job well, you've turned to sea swimming as a means of dealing with stress associated with the work. Can you talk about that, Eva? Yes, thanks, Evelyn. Absolutely. I'm uh, always really happy to talk about swimming because it's always been a deep passion of mine. When I was a kid, my whole life revolved around swimming. You know, I was in squad and I, you know, swam at a reasonably high level and it was always my dream and uh, the only thing I thought about was going to the Olympics and uh, achieving you know the highest level as a swimmer as a young person. Then I dropped out when I was about 13 or 14 just because 13 and 14 year olds are (laughs) um, not necessarily making the best decisions about their future and I just thought I didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't want to train for 25 hours a week but It was something that I set aside for quite a long time. I didn't really go back to the pool for another 20 years. And it was something that always made me feel very disappointed in myself that I'd given that up. I felt that the opportunity to take my swimming as far as I could take it had slipped away from me. But then at the end of 2019, I'd just been living in Bangladesh for two years. And then that was cut short suddenly And I was suddenly back in Australia, you know, I didn't have a job. I didn't know what my future was looking like. I'm someone who doesn't do well sitting still. 
and uh, it was very uncomfortable for me being uh, back in Sydney when I'd been living in Cox's Bazaar for two years and prior to that I'd been living uh, um, in Sri Lanka and India and Nepal and uh, the work in Cox's Bazaar is I often describe it as being the in the twilight zone. Um, I've actually just come from Cox's Bazaar this week. You know, working in a refugee camp and that response, particularly in Bangladesh, is uh, the level of inhumanity that exists in that context is extreme. And uh, the conditions that the people are being forced to live in and the conditions that they've fled from, it's it's another planet. Just to give some context to our listeners, the Cox's Bazaar that you're referring to is a district in Bangladesh where one of the world's biggest refugee camps is located, primarily the Rohingya community who would have fled um, Myanmar. And you've been back and forth and we'll go into that further throughout the conversation. And as you said, you've spent two years there. So I'm assuming it's a lot different to to what you're, you're landing back to in Australia. You know, it's uh, my friends would joke uh, back in Sydney that I was really good at killing conversations because you've been living in um, this very extreme context where you're dealing with these extreme problems. You're dealing with a response to what has been said to be genocide. You're dealing with sexual violence. You're dealing with the attempt to provide humanitarian aid to over a million people. So the events that you deal with on a daily basis there are just so different from what you deal with back home in Sydney. And uh, because I'd been out of Sydney for quite some time, it's very difficult coming back to your home after living in that context. I spoke to a filmmaker before who would have spent a lot of time in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and she was from Ireland. And when she would come back from there and come back to Ireland and she would come home primarily at Christmas time and and she said it was almost like, you know, you were in a video game and you were switching from one game to the next. It was that radical, that change. I, I really relate to that feeling. You know, the kind of awkwardness around family dinners, particularly with extended family, when people are asking about what you've been doing and your, your life and, uh, you know, if you've been living in Cox's Bazaar, you know, some of that stuff is not casual conversation. I realised that I really needed to develop another side of myself aside from work. And if you're living in Cox's Bazaar, it's very hard to do anything but work. So I um, decided one day with my brother to go down to a, a um, swimming competition, just an ocean swim. I entered the 5K, my brother entered the 2.5K, and it was just wonderful being back in the water and I hadn't really been in the sea for years. I really felt so comfortable and so pleased to be there and I, you know, I wasn't trying to win, I wasn't trying to do anything, I hadn't been training or anything, but the feeling of being back in the water was just something I connected with very strongly. And the group that had organised that swim, it turns out they swam every day every day down at Coogee over December and so I, I turned up at 7am on the Monday and they'd already swum out and I sort of swam after them and I said hey can I swim with you <laughs> and uh, the, the sort of leader of the group said well are you are you fast and confident and just immediately I said yes 
it was true. I'd always been extremely confident in the water. I always felt very at home in the water. And uh, it was just this thing that switched inside my head at that point that that was where I was meant to be. That was where I belonged. And uh, after the swim, everyone has a coffee. And, you know, this group of people are amazing ultra marathon swimmers. They've all swum the English Channel. They've all uh, done uh, 25 kilometer swims. They've swum the Catalina Channel. And uh, I'm sitting there afterwards having coffee with them. And they're all talking about these amazing swims they've done. And, you know, as a swimmer, when I was a child, I just thought swimmers were the most famous people in the world. And I thought they were the most important people in the world. And so kind of being surrounded by all these swimmers was so exciting for me. And it was really speaking to the inner child that I have. It was very nurturing to be listening to all these people talk about these wonderful things. And it had nothing to do with my work. It had nothing to do with the genocide or sexual violence or anything. It was this passion that was being so fed by this amazing group of swimmers. And so then I just ended up swimming with them every day. And then the sort of rest is history. Cut to two years later, <laughs> I'm doing a 25-hour swim in Lake Geneva and um, loving it. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I was thinking, how did I get here? Like it's a, you know, the 25-hour swim is an unusual swim for even a, a long-distance swimmer. You know, the, the English Channel is 35 kilometres and the Lake Geneva swim at 58 kilometres. You know, it was the equivalent of almost two English channels and, you know, I swam through the night and uh, <laughs> um, so it was a, it, it was an extreme swim even as far as, as channel swimmers go. But what happened over this period was I really connected with that passionate child swimmer and developed this side of me which had been neglected for such a long time. And in a job that is so very adult and very serious and the responsibility is huge and, you know, you're dealing with the world's most serious problems, to have a space where my 10-year-old self gets to you know, frolic around in the water for two hours in the morning and, you know, be surrounded by all these amazing swimmers. For me, it just feels like such a balancing. A lot of what you, you're saying rings totally true to me because I'm not in any way a marathon sea swimmer. Um, and we've talked about this before, but I, I have been swimming for in the sea for, you know, um, most of my life. And, um, you know, I think what you're saying in relation to the water, it being that element that's different, right? So even the sound is different. The rhythm is different. And it's all encompassing. So, you know, you don't think about anything because firstly, the water may be absolutely freezing. So, you know, you're focusing on your breath. But then secondly, you can't think about anything else because you're absorbed in this absolute wildness that reminds you that there's so much to the earth and to this planet than what's going on in our heads. Um, and I would imagine for you as well, being such a good swimmer, that it really helps you get into your breathing, back into your body. Absolutely. And uh, there's nothing more energising than uh, going through that motion of, uh, you know, one, two, three, breathe, one, two, three, breathe. And uh, just setting yourself to go and going for, for 
hours and I have always felt like I could swim for hours because I feel so comfortable in that spot and I think there's also a, a smallness that we feel in the ocean and I think that's a really important feeling to connect with particularly when I love swimming in swell and I don't mind swimming in big swell and the feeling of the waves just tossing you around and the position you're you're in where you have to be reading the surf and you have to be reading where the reefs are and how the water is moving there's a humility that you've got to have in the ocean because it's certainly not going to bend to your will you need to know how to read it and how to understand it in order to survive in it i think that's just really crucial what you said there actually about in order to survive in it because learning to survive there you know, maybe you can too draw parallels with learning to survive in the parallel worlds that you live in, the world of genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity, Eva. And I wondered about that victim-centred work, you know, being most comfortable in that very immediate proximity to grief. Certainly, when I was growing up, I was exposed to a lot of grief. I had a lot of loss in my family and as a teenager. But I was sitting around with friends when I was in my early 20s and we were talking about funerals and, and you know, losing people. And uh, at the age of 22, I had gone to nine funerals, four of which that I had spoken at. So that sort of gives you an idea of my proximity um, to the person. You know, I, I'd been exposed to a lot of loss and a lot of the complications and the feelings and processes you go through at a, at a young age. And it was a very isolating experience. You know, you're in, you're in your 20s and you've dealt with all this very heavy stuff inside your family. And uh, it's something that other people can't possibly relate to. You know, the impact these things have on you and the maturity you often need to process grief. And so as a consequence, I think I've always felt comfortable with other people who are grieving and not to say that what I experienced is similar to what happens in the situation of war crimes or genocide or crimes against humanity. It's a very sanitised version of it. But I certainly don't feel uncomfortable around people who are grieving and uh, I certainly, I think, can relate quite well to people in that situation, probably better than <laughs> people who aren't. And uh, I think one of the consequences of that is uh, I was always very happy to sit with people for a day or, you know, I think often when people are parachuting in and out of these humanitarian contexts, I think often the personality characteristic that pushes people to do that is, you know, being an adrenaline junkie. You know, they want to go, they want to get the story, they want to do five interviews in a day and they want to, you know, get the evidence back and they want to do something. And for me, that makes me feel very, very anxious. I want to build that trust and that relationship and uh, I want to understand what people want and uh, how I can support that. And as you said, yes, maybe you haven't experienced the same grief as the people that you're meeting and to a degree representing. But I think grief at such a young age, especially, I think realising there are various different spectrums associated with living 
and that they're all part of it, really. I, I often think of grief as being a very blunt experience because I think it's something that lasts a lifetime. And it's interesting because I often connect very well without knowing with other people who have experienced grief. And if I think of my kind of closest friends, a lot of them have also experienced loss. It certainly becomes a very strong part of your personality. Mm. And this really is central to the work that you do. And I'd love to know more about that, you know, the places that you've been to, the people you've helped and why you believe victims need to be placed more centrally within justice processes not just for more fruitful mechanics, but but rather for healing. Often victims of serious international crimes are from the most marginalised sections of the community, and that's why they become susceptible to serious international crimes. So they may have never interacted with a rule of law institution in their life that was fair to them or that they believed in or that they trusted the idea that, you know, they've, they've got a court, they've got an international mechanism to engage with. This might be their first opportunity to engage with a rule of law institution that's not going to abuse them. So it's important not only for the kind of justice process, but it's important for what victims are going to learn about the justice process and what they're going to take back to their communities and what they're going to build after a conflict and when they go back home. So... I think there's a real missed opportunity when we exclude victims, not just that they uh, see justice being done and then uh, learn to apply that to their experience back home, but also that they get to be part of telling the story of what happened to them and see how this process unfolds. And I think that's so critically important for their ability to heal, as opposed to sitting in a camp while people in The Hague argue about what happened to them. It's just so important that they get to see justice take place. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International with me, Evelyn McCleffery. Today, we're talking to Eva Buzo about placing victims more centrally within justice processes. Eva is an Australian barrister and head of Victim Advocates International, a movement of and for victims of serious international crimes. This podcast is funded by Irish Aid and we'll be back shortly. You know, you've mentioned it throughout the conversation, your work with the Rohingya community, with close to one million of them now living in the the Cox's Bazaar district in Bangladesh. You lived there for two years, you know, hearing those stories, being part of their lives, sexual and gender-based violence, killings, infanticide. Can you tell us a little bit more about that work? The the work that I was doing in Cox's kind of had various hats and uh, it's interesting how the the needs in the camp have changed over the last five years and the situation now is by many measures worse than it was in 2017-2018 because the situation has just been allowed to deteriorate you know in southern Bangladesh where they've built fences around the camp the security situation has deteriorated there's no access to livelihoods no access to education it's an incredibly dire situation in the camp. When I first went to to Cox's Bazaar, I was the protection lead for BRAC. It's actually one of the largest NGOs in the world and it's primarily based in, in Bangladesh. 
I, I was running their protection facilities, so women-friendly spaces and community centres, information points. And uh, in, in November 2017, people were still streaming across the border. And so, you know, you've got this refugee camp that has just popped up out of nowhere. You've got people arriving every day. It's It's chaos, you know, and it's amazing how quickly people will adapt to that situation you know you would uh, go to the camp one day and you couldn't cross a, a section because there was you know water running through it you'd go back the next day and a group of Rohingya men were just building a bamboo bridge um, across the section and uh, you know the way in which people just rise to the occasion and uh, you know watching this camp pop up was really quite extraordinary I was in the camp, you know, in those early days, I was probably in the camp four or five days a week, you know, I was kind of watching it change quite rapidly. And uh, I think that the biggest impact was, you know, people weren't necessarily always wanting to tell their story of what happened. It was people wanted, the needs that people had were just so high. And uh, it was a really challenging set of circumstances because you know, it's not like Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh was an area teeming with the infrastructure to deal with a million new people, right? It's not like there were psychosocial support specialists standing by waiting to respond to people who have gone through this hideous trauma. There weren't doctors standing by waiting to respond to this. It, You know, it's this situation that just pops up and uh, the the need is enormous you go into the camp every day and you meet the same people and uh, you you talk to them about what they need in that moment. And uh, I always remember that, you know, on, in the early days, the women were always asking for burqas. A lot of them had fled without bringing a burqa and the consequence of that is they stayed inside their shelters. And then we would talk to the sector coordinator and say, look, we need to distribute burkas for the women because they're staying inside their shelters. They're not going out to go to the bathroom. They're not going out to access um, healthcare. They're, they're staying inside their shelters because they don't feel comfortable going out. They don't feel safe going out in this environment without a burqa. And then the, the sector coordinator couldn't ever, and the group of actors could never agree on whether or not to distribute burqas because they said, we don't want to make it sound like we're forcing them to wear burqas. Uh, if we distribute them, then uh, that seems like we want them to wear them. You know, and these sort of arguments go back and forth because you're saying, well, women are defecating inside their own house because they don't feel comfortable going out, you know, without their burqa, just give them a book. It, it's, it's just a survival tool at this point. And so, you know, these are the types of conversations that are going round and round in circles. The other thing that I found really striking was how quickly people like to put fear into women about their movement and about new environments, because the, the conversations around trafficking and, you know, immediately there were organisations going door to door warning women of the perils of trafficking. Now, I understand that there's a need to raise awareness about this, but one of the consequences of saying, uh, oh, you could get trafficked if you go outside, once again, is something that restricts women's movement. So women would not feel comfortable leaving their shelter. I, I met a woman who had seven children and her husband had been killed she didn't know that there was a healthcare facility 
20 metres away behind her shelter because she'd been so scared to, to leave her shelter because she'd been told by all these people that Bangladesh is a hotbed for trafficking and, if you know, women need to be careful of all the evil people that are about. So that I thought was extremely problematic and I understand that it comes from a good place, but just how quickly people were spreading messages that were impacting women's movement and their feelings of security. You know, what you're saying, it seems like there's a lot of fear in that kind of a situation, you know, um, not knowing what the best thing is to do. It's chaotic as well, right? So was your experience, it was all sort of tumbling over, you know, there wasn't really a very strategic program for the people who are arriving into the camp. Yeah, exactly. But but who knows how to respond to that situation, right? Because the other thing that I had, you know, running all these facilities is I suddenly had 150 team members. None of them had worked in a humanitarian response before. And I had to suddenly train them all up in, uh, you know, how to operate a woman-friendly space, how to operate a community centre, doing case management for gender-based violence. And, you know, it was extremely it was extremely chaotic because, you know, everyone wants you to do something immediately and you've just got such limited resources at your hands to be able to do anything. And uh, I remember I, I had a difficulty spending the money that we were had coming in because there were millions of dollars coming into the immediate response and the organisation I was working for was getting, you know, huge amounts of that. And uh, I had a burn rate of, of, of funds of about 30% because I just couldn't upscale as quickly as the money was coming in. And I remember getting, you know, pulled up on this by my supervisor who, who said, you know, what's happening? You, you know, we've got a, you've only spent 30% and we're 70% of the way through the project. And I said, you know, I can't train people quick enough to get them out there. You know, gender-based violence is a serious issue. It's a serious matter to deal with. You know, people are coming to me with absolutely no skills and background. I can't just put people in the camp without having basic minimum skills at dealing with this. The response I got back was just two words, implement faster, <laughs> which which kind of just sums up the a humanitarian response like that, you know, and if you're kind of on the front line of that, you've got all these people with all these high expectations, you know, people want something to happen immediately and everyone's got an idea and I was kind of the one on the front line running all these facilities, trying to bridge that gap between the community and the, the humanitarian response. And it was absolutely chaotic. And uh, it's, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know what success was meant to look like in that space. Um, but I pretty quickly turned a lot of my daytime work hours to making sure I sat in the camp with the people using my facilities and building a relationship directly with the Rohingya community members and so that I could build that trust because at the end of the day, it was so difficult to understand what a success was meant to look like at that point. But I knew that if I developed that strong relationship with the people I was meant to be working for, then at least I would have a good uh, guiding light of what to prioritise and how to prioritise it. No, it's a, it's a hugely valid and interesting question, actually this success piece, right? And again, maybe it relates back to this whole conversation. Victims being centrally placed within justice processes. 
So, you know, it seems like in this instance, certainly, you, you really just prioritise the people. You prioritise those people who are in the camps that, you know, the money was for, actually. Eva, while you were at the camp, you became friends with Mohammed Mohib Ullah, a Rohingya human rights activist and leader who was shot dead in his office in the refugee camp in Cox's Bazaar. Are you open to talking about what sort of an impact his death had on your life? You know, since the beginning of the Rohingya crisis, the number one thing people kind of would say that the Rohingya needed in order to deal with their problem, they would say, you know, there is no Rohingya leadership. There's no one we can consult about the community. So therefore, we will make all these decisions on their behalf. So it was around kind of early 2018 that people started saying, oh, there's this teacher, there's this guy, Mohib. He fancies himself the Rohingya leader. <laughs> um, so I dropped by his office one day and uh, he's, he's incredibly, um, uh, I would say, disarming. Uh, he, he was very smiley, you know, but at the same time, he's a very serious advocate for justice and inclusion for his community. And, uh, you know, I was quite impressed by him. I was quite, you know, I thought maybe this is the guy. I started meeting with him quite regularly. I would, I would drop by his office on my way out of the camp. I would, you know, I'd say, if you need any help with legal things, let me know. But I didn't work with him in any official capacity. And then in February 2019, the opportunity came up for us to go to Geneva to uh, speak at the Human Rights Council. It was all a very big deal um, and it was all very exciting. And so I got to spend, you know, that week with Mohib as he addressed the Human Rights Council as, you know, we took a lot of high-level meetings in Geneva. So we worked closely on strategy and advocacy and you know we just became friends and I really kind of saw him as being uh, that answer to the Rohingya problem. I had a lot of hope in him and his leadership and what he wanted to do because you know at the centre of it he he was a good man, he was a good father and he wanted that leadership position for the right reasons. He saw the impact that the lack of Rohingya leadership was having on his community and uh, he decided to fill that gap. And uh, the consequence of him having such a prominent position was a lot of attacks, a lot of criticism, and even when he was receiving death threats, he wasn't interested in leaving the camp forever. We would say things like we could try to get you resettled in a third country, we can, you know, you could leave, and he didn't take it. You know, he was of the view that his place was in the camp, in Cox's Bazaar. You know, he had the opportunity twice to, to flee the camp and he never took it. You know, I think most people would have fled and that ultimately ended up the way we knew it would. We, we knew he was going to be targeted. Uh, we knew it was coming. So that's a good quality in a leader. And I think people didn't give him credit for, for that. And, look, the, we spent a long time trying to get the protection he needed. And the thing that I think was most heartbreaking for me and continues to be is the 
the amount of people who said to me in the days and weeks after his murder, I should have done more. Yeah, I, I, I can't express how I feel about that because, you know, he's dead. His kids are going to grow up without a father. No one's taken his place as the Rohingya leader in the camp. He was an important person to a community that has experienced, you know, what the US has called genocide. And he had protection risks and he had a list of the people who were going to kill him. We know the names of the people. We've got a list of it. Well, you know, this whole situation, we knew what was going to happen. Mohib and I had talked about what to do with his family and, you know, he asked me to make sure that they were looked after. And uh, the amount of people who said to me I should have done more, you should have. <laughs> they, you know, when I'm processing grief, I always try to land it on a positive note and I feel incredibly lucky that I knew Mohib and considered him a friend and I feel lucky that I was someone to him. But at the end of the day, there's also a lot of anger there. Eva, does it also anger you, the fact that as yet there's been no justice for the Rohingya people? You know, the military in Myanmar have been accused of genocide. There are investigations underway at the International Court of Justice, the International Criminal Court, along with cases in various national courts. But what do you see as the way forward for the Rohingya, Eva? And I'm very struck by something that you've said to me before. You said that so much of the evidence base is in the hearts and minds of people. You know, I've just come from Cox's Bazaar this week. I'm actually currently transiting in Bangkok. And the question of what's the way forward for the Rohingya people, I would like to be optimistic, but I fear that optimism is is a luxury we shouldn't be leaning into because the situation in Cox's Bazaar is dire. And something has to give. Boat departures have increased significantly in the last six months because people don't see a future in the camp. People have been uh, fleeing Bangladesh by land. People have been self-relocating outside the camp. And, you know, the situation in Myanmar doesn't look much better. So while I would like to say something optimistic, I think that might not send the message that everyone needs to step up in this situation and do more. You know, when it comes to accountability, those courts are going to be meaningless to the Rohingya if they can't go home, if they can't return, you know, to where they once lived and have freedom of movement, have their livelihood activities, access to education, that's what's important to people. I mean, there's certainly a strong misconception in the camps that the ICC and the ICJ are going to somehow impact that. And there's a real strong need for better messaging on what these courts are actually capable of delivering. But, and I sort of, I I feel like it's very easy to start cases. You can start a case in any jurisdiction, but finishing, finishing a case is what's important, right? And ensuring that that case has impact is what's important and uh, I would much prefer there to be one successful case at this point 
than multiple cases that are duplicating efforts. And uh, until we can arrest people and put them on trial, we're not going to get that one good case. We're just going to be playing the waiting game. So I really think there needs to be a better putting of the heads together to work out what to do about the situation in Cox's Bazaar because that's going nowhere good and uh, justice for something that happened five years ago is going to mean nothing to people if they're currently in a state of trauma, if they're currently in a state where they don't have freedom of movement, where they are living in squalid camps under tarpaul and shelters, where their kids don't have access to education, where they don't have access to livelihood activities, that's going to be the, the bigger concern to them than uh, what happened five years ago. You know, the story of Rohingya suffering and persecution is ongoing. It's not something that happened five years ago and is now sort of drifting into the past. It's continuing and uh, we can't talk about justice until we can end the, the ongoing persecution. Eva, thank you for your time today. It was really lovely to talk to you and um, great to hear your insights. Thanks, Evelyn. This was really nice to chat. And that was Eva Buso, Australian barrister and head of the NGO Victim Advocates International. To hear more about Eva's work and that of her organisation, I'd suggest you check out their website. Not long after Eva and I chatted, a fire broke out in Cox's, leaving thousands without shelter. Many Rohingya claimed afterwards that there was no safety or security there. According to Amnesty International, since January of 21, there have been more than 200 fire incidents in the Rohingya camps, including 60 cases of arson. That's it for this month's show from Oz Irish Rule of Law International and me, Evelyn McClafferty. Thanks to Irish Aid for funding this podcast. If you like it, please do subscribe. It's available on all your major podcast platforms. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listener.